Praise God. All right. Well, I'm going to do a, a teaching this morning that is kind of in response to what we had happen last week. And we had a wonderful service last week with Eric Burton being here uh, as a guest evangelist and a guest a speaker, and he did a wonderful job. And, and boy, what a service that was. We didn't get out of here till what, 2 o'clock, 2.30, something like that? So it was just a wonderful time in the Lord. And so I wanted to do a teaching this morning that uh, just kind of followed up on that and addresses what to do after a move of God. Uh, so turn with me, if you will, to our master text you see up there on the screen, 2 Kings chapter 13, and that's in your Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 13. So I'll give you a moment to get there. And when you find that, would you stand up with me and let's honor the reading of the word? We're going to start in verse 14 and read through verse 19. And it says this, now Elisha and Elisha was the prophet in Israel during this time. Now Elisha was suffering from the illness which, from which he would die. Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. My father, my father, he cried, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Elisha said, get a bow and some arrows. And he did so. Take the bow in your hands, he said to the king of Israel. When he had taken it, Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. Open the east window, he said, and he opened it. Shoot, Elisha said, and he shot. The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Aram, Elisha declared. And Aram was an enemy nation. You will completely destroy the Arameans at Aphek. Then he said, take the arrows, and the king took them. Elisha told him, strike the ground. He struck it three times and stopped. The man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. But now you will defeat it only three times. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Okay, well what in the world does that have to do with what to do after a move of God? Well, I'm about to tell you. Why was the prophet angry with the king for striking the ground only three times? Because, after all, the king did what the prophet said. He said, strike the ground, and he struck it. So why was he angry with him that he only struck it three times? It was apparently because the king did it passively. He did what he was instructed to do. He just went through the motions, if you will, of following directions but there was no passion in it, folks. There was no passion in it, no fervor in the way that he did it. So God essentially told the king through the prophet Elisha, okay, I'm going to defeat your enemies to a degree, but I will not completely destroy them. I'm going to respond to you in the same way that you responded to me. Hello. The lesson that we can learn from Elisha then is that God in so many words says, I'm going to respond to you similar to how you respond to me. There's a New Testament reference there to that point in James 4.8, which says, draw near to the Lord and he will draw near to you. So God oftentimes responds to us in the same way that we respond to him. In so many words, Elisha was saying to the king, why are you so passive 
And I think that's the same thing the Lord would say to many of us today. Why are you so spiritually passive? See, I want you to understand something, folks. Whatever level that you believe that you've achieved spiritually today, you need to realize that there's so much more under the surface yet to be discovered, sort of like that iceberg pictured there. So a move of God, like we had last week, a move of God should open our eyes to the possibilities that there's more of the things of heaven that God wants us to walk in. So we should be all the more hungry to be on fire for God and not let that new passion die. Because it will if you let it. When there's a move of God, there's often a new passion that sometimes wanes after a time if we're not careful. So that new passion will wane if you let it. See, if a move of God does anything, folks, it should inspire us to go for it that much more in our personal lives by praying in the Spirit more, serving more, worshiping more, and learning more from the Word of God. See, if the move of God is any indication of that tip of the iceberg, then it should inspire us to want more of it. Don't you agree with that? Now, several months ago, I did a a, a teaching called When God Seems Absent. In that teaching, I referenced the dangers of being on spiritual cruise control. And I made a parallel there about cruise control in cars and some of the potential dangers there and what the research says about that to Uh, spiritual cruise control. So I want to go back to that point and revisit that. Uh, Here's the research that I referred to in that previous teaching. So a study released by the Vinci Auto Routes Foundation for Responsible Driving showed that some of the potential dangers with cruise control are due to a lack of attentiveness on the part of cruise control users. The motorists lack of engagement when using cruise control could increase the chances of accidents. Okay, so in that teaching, uh, again, it was called When God Seems Absent, I talked about something that has been referred to as the dark night of the soul, when God just seems distant and absent and, and silent in your life. And my point in using this illustration about um, cruise control in that teaching is that during those times when God seems absent and you feel very spiritually dry, it's a temptation to pull back on the throttle and get passive spiritually. But you know what? That is also true when things are comfortable and everything seems to be going right for you. As a matter of fact, I'm going to say that that tendency to go on spiritual cruise control is probably more of a temptation when things are going well for you and we've just come out of a move of God. It's the same temptation in both scenarios, just presenting itself in different circumstances. So what is the danger of spiritual cruise control when things are going good then? Well, I want to give you an illustration about when I got my second car, Uh, My first car when I was 16 was a great big 1968 Bonneville. It was enormous. And it was a really, it was a really ugly, washed out olive color. It was really ugly. You know, back then, when gas wasn't maybe as expensive as it is right now, it, it, it 
took $34 back in you know, the early 80s to fill that thing up. Um, but my second car was a 1972 Chevy Nova. Mm. Mm. <laughs> so a little bit of a muscle car. It was fast. And uh, I was 17 years old at that time. And I remember I had this girl that I was interested in, and she was interested in me. We hadn't gotten really far into, you know, our little puppy love thing that we were doing at 17 years old. But uh, I was driving her home from school, and we were on 25th Street, just not three or four blocks from Columbus North High School where we attended. So she was in the passenger seat, and, you know, I thought she was so pretty, and I was just, you know, had my one hand up on the steering wheel, and I was looking at her and making googly eyes, you know, like this. And we were talking, and I was cruising down 25th Street, looking at her. Bam! I ran right in the rear end of a a car in front of me because I wasn't paying close enough attention because my attention was on the pretty girl in the car next to me. And she, uh, her knees hit the dashboard and uh, it hurt her right knee a little bit. And for some reason, our relationship didn't go very far after that. So, So what's my point there? The point is that that is the danger of cruise control as well is that you don't see what's coming. If you're not paying close enough enough attention, you don't see what's coming, right? See, something can blindside you because you're not on high alert. See, you, you can't treat a move of God like it's the end of the story, like everything's gonna be roses from here on out because there's still an enemy out there that wants to take you out, folks, when you least expect it. So what we need to be doing after a move of God is watch out for the counterattacks. Now, I've got pictured on the screen there for you uh, General Yamamoto of the Japanese Imperial Army. And he says this about the counterattack. He said, a military man can scarcely pride himself on having smitten a sleeping enemy. It is more a matter of shame simply for the one smitten. I would rather you made your appraisal after seeing what the enemy does, since it is certain that, angered and outraged, he will soon launch a determined counterattack. All right, so what kind of counterattacks might we be looking out for where Satan and his minions are concerned? Well, Satan likes to use offense, being offended, as a primary weapon. Why? Because it poisons your spirituality. He likes to use that as a primary weapon. He'll trip you up with someone acting terrible toward you and get your mind focused on the carnal, get your mind focused on the anger, on the resentment, on the unfair treatment by the one who treated you that way, on the lies, on the deception, whatever the case may be. He wants your mind to get focused on that. And, you know, I was having a discussion with my son Drew just this past week about this very thing. If Satan can't get an access point in one area of your life, or maybe he was getting an access point in one area of your your life, and then you'd cut that off, you realize what was going on, and you cut off that access point, well, he's not just going to slink away and go, oh, it's over. I can never do anything to him again. No, he'll back off for a while And then he's going to look for another access point. He's going to go around the back and look for another access point. 
Now, he'll still try to get in during that, into that one access point that he was cut off from. If he can find an opportunity to get in that same access point, he will. But if that's been cut off, if you've dealt successfully with that issue of your life, guess what he's going to do? He's going to come in around the back and see if he can find another access point. And offense is a great way that he does that because it's so easy for us to take the bait of Satan. So easy. If you haven't listened to John Bevere's teaching, Bait of Satan, yet, or if you haven't uh, read that book, I strongly recommend that you read that book or listen to that audio teaching that he has because that is a primary weapon of Satan, offense. And one of the things that John Bevere brings out in that teaching that I've actually used the same illustration in my teachings before because I had heard this before he, had, he shared it uh, before I listened to that teaching. But um, one of the ways that people in Africa, monkey trappers, trap monkeys, you may have heard this illustration, is that they'll put a cage, uh, a cage with bars with a brightly colored object in it or a banana or something to eat. And the, the bars are only wide enough for that monkey to get his hand in like that with the fingers extended. But once he grabs the brightly colored object or the banana or the piece of food, once he makes, opens up those fingers and grabs the object, the bars are too narrow to pull it back out again. So he, he's trapped. Unless he lets go of that object, he's trapped. And for some reason, those monkeys are really stubborn and trappers know that. And so what they do is, once the monkey grabs the object, they are so stubborn, they will not let go of that object, and the trappers just come along and knock them over the head, and it's over. And they, they, even when they see the hunters coming, they will not let go of that object. And they know that, so it's super easy. So that's the great analogy where offense is concerned. If you don't let go of the offense, Satan will beat your brains out with it. And there's other things, other counterattacks that Satan will use. He'll sometimes use other temptations to sin, fill in the blank, uh, whatever your area of weakness is, he'll work on that thing. Um, sometimes it's a physical attack, a physical illness of some sort. So we just need to watch and pray after the move of God so that we can be watching out for these things. See, if we'll commit to a lifestyle of being in God's presence in our private lives, through prayer, fasting, worship, and his word, then we'll, we will be less likely to fall for these strategies of hell that wants to rob us of the new things that God's trying to do in our midst. Does that make sense? 1 Peter 5.8 says this, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And if he can, he will take you out if he's able, if you let him. Be alert, therefore, and of sober mind. Because there is a real devil. There are real demons. And they prowl around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour who's not expecting it. And he likes to trip us up during those, the aftermath of wonderful things happening when we're least expecting an attack like that. So folks, listen, what we just need to be doing right now is focusing and continuing to focus on the right things, on the right things. See, the focus is still the destination, not the oasis. What we had happen here last week with a four-hour service where people were getting delivered and set free and healed and, and ministered to and repentance was happening and a wonderful time. 
Um, okay, so that's an oasis kind of experience. We don't need to be focusing on the oasis. That's wonderful when those things happen. But continuing to focus on the destination. Or you could say it this way, focus on the journey, not just the occasional oasises that are there to refresh us from time to time. See, listen, a move of God is for equipping and strengthening it isn't to rest one's laurels on or hang out there forever. See, if you stay in the oasis too long, it's going to dry up and you're going to be in trouble. You remember the story in Genesis where um, Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar, was driven away from Abraham's family and clan. And she was driven away into the desert with her son Ishmael. Well, you remember they traveled long enough that their water dried up and their supplies dried up and, and they were about to die. They were close to death. As a matter of fact, so close to death that Hagar set her son Ishmael in a place under the shade and then went a, a distance off because she couldn't bear to sit there and watch him die. That's how close they were to death. And then an angel came and ministered to Hagar and spoke to her about the future of her son. And then after the angel spoke and left, then all of a sudden she saw this oasis, this well of water nearby where she went and refreshed herself and her son. And they were able to be strengthened and travel on in their journey to find a place of refuge uh, ultimately. But obviously Hagar and her son couldn't have stayed in that oasis. They needed other things other than just water. They needed food, shelter, clothing. They needed a community they needed to get to, correct? So they couldn't stay in the, in the oasis. The oasis is a place, folks, of refreshing to be re-energized, to continue moving forward with a fresh anointing of God, and to continue moving forward in what you already know to do. See, it, it's... What we already know to do is the disciplines of our faith. And so often, the disciplines of our faith seem uh, just a little bit unsavory compared to the wonderful oasis that we experienced last week where, you know, we got like a little dessert last week. And that's wonderful when those things happen. Wonderful when we reach the oasis and we get refreshed and re-energized and strengthened. But the disciplines of our faith is like the meat and potatoes, right? You got to live on the word. You got to live on prayer. You got to live on fellowship with other believers. You can't stay in the oasis forever. The little goosebumpy experiences that we have from time to time are so great and wonderful when they happen. But God says, okay, now that you've gotten the little refreshing, get back to work in the disciplines of your faith, sharing your faith, being active in the community, knowing my word, obeying my word, okay? Prayer, worship, all those disciplines of the faith that seem sometimes not as savory compared to the spiritual buzz that we get during some of these revival services. So don't be deceived then into thinking that we need some sort of, sort of spiritual buzz all the time. See, the life of faith is just that. It's walking by blind faith even when there is no emotion. Okay? See, sometimes, folks, in fact, most of the time, actually, a life of faith is devoid of emotion. Let me give you an example. Young David, when he was out tending sheep, you know, young David, I, I'm, I'm encouraged by his story because David grew up not being very liked by his older brothers or even his dad, for that matter. 
If you read the account, when Samuel came to their house to anoint the next king, he went down the line and, and asked, you know, Lord, is, is this the one? Uh, no, no, it's not that one. Is this the one? No, don't be. God told Samuel, don't, don't look at his height or his looks because I've rejected him. And he went all, all down the line of the brothers. And then he asked Jesse, the father, is this all your sons? Is there another one that you have? Jesse said, yeah, there's another one that we have out in the field. And I forget the word. I think it's the word katan, if I'm not mistaken, the, the old Hebrew word. And it basically means worthless one. He said, yeah, we have a katan out in the, in the field, a worthless one. But you don't want him. He's, he's a worthless one. So his dad didn't even like him that much. So he was isolated. He didn't have a lot of friends or relatives that liked him. He was treated unfairly. And here he was out in the field, totally isolated except with the sheep. No emotions, no goosebumps, no revival service, no worship leader, no worship team, no pastor. Just him and the scriptures and his harp maybe singing worship songs. Just him and God and the stinky sheep. But that was his place of growth, ladies and gentlemen. That was his place of growth. Praise God. So on that note... You don't have to turn here, but in Hebrews 10, verses 35 through 39, I'd encourage you to go read that as it pertains to this particular teaching. But in that passage, it encourages us to persevere in doing the will of God. Now, that word persevere in that verse is a Greek word that means patient and cheerful endurance. Patient and cheerful endurance. See, when young David was brought in from the field to be anointed Israel's next king, do you know what he did immediately after Samuel anointed him as the next king? He turned right around, went right back out of the fields, and continued his job of tending those sheep. Hmm. Why did he do that? He'd just been anointed Israel's next king. But he knew his time had not yet come. He knew there was a call in his life, but he knew that his time had not yet come. So he just had to go back to doing what he knew to do that was in front of him right now. He just had to go back to do the things that God had called him to do for that season of his life and not run out ahead of God. Again, we have to do the same thing. We just have to keep putting one foot in front of the other and doing what we know that God has called us to do in this season of our lives. We have to practice patient and cheerful endurance, right? Even in those times where maybe all the goosebumps and the emotions are not quite as high as they were last week. Let me say this. You and I are very similar, I think, to the story of David. Because I think a lot of us are in those dry seasons sometimes. We're like, God, you know, I feel like there's a call in my life, but what do I do with this? Well, don't worry. Just keep doing what you know to do for today. And God will cause that to unfold in time. I want to give you another perspective here out of Luke 4.13. And the context here in Luke 4 is when Jesus was out in the wilderness and Satan was tempting him. And you know how Jesus responded to all three of those temptations. He gave him the word of God. He responded with the word of God and shot down every temptation with a memorized word of God. And then when Satan got shot down for the third time, it says that when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him, left Jesus, until an opportune time. 
That means he was planning on coming back. See, the reason it's so important to keep moving forward after a move of God, and perhaps especially after a move of God, is that the oasis that we're tempted to stay in won't be an oasis very long if we set up camp there. The enemy will eventually find you and strike at an opportune time. So, that said... I'm going to give you another perspective here. And, and again, this point was also in the teaching that I did several months ago uh, when God seems absent, but it applies to this teaching here this morning as well. Folks, listen, we need to learn to trust God all the time, not just during the spiritual highs. Did I lose somebody on that one? Learn to trust God all the time, not just during the spiritual highs. See, we need to get to the place where we face the fact that a truly spiritual person is not one who always has to know what's going on around him or her. They don't have to have a word of knowledge all the time because a truly spiritual person walks by faith. And just as true, a truly spiritual person is not one who experiences goosebumps and butterflies all the time. Not that I'm against that when that happens. But a truly spiritual person doesn't need to have that all the time in order to be motivated spiritually. Because it's a walk of faith. A truly spiritual person who can walk with God by faith, even when all the outward circumstances would make it seem as though God has abandoned you. Which he's not. But all the outward circumstances would make it seem as though God has forgotten you. But we know that he hasn't because we walk by faith, not by sight. Now, I want to address something really quick here um, before I go on with this point. Um, I was in a, a revival service. I'm going to call it that. It wasn't like a revival week or anything. It was just a service in a church that I had attended many years ago that was a service much like what we had last week. And... Um, a lady was in that service that I knew very well, and uh, she just looked really sad and despondent. She was sitting toward the back. She was just looking really sad and despondent um, after the service. And um, so I went down and I sat next to her and I said, hey, you know, what's going on? You seem, you know, maybe a little bit down or upset. And she said, I just don't know why I can't feel God or get touched by God the way I see all these other people apparently being touched by God. Well, knowing the lady like I do, sometimes, sometimes your own heart issues can prevent you from experiencing what other people seem to be experiencing when there's a move of God. Sometimes there's just a, a hardness of heart that prevents that from happening. But there's another side of that story as well. There's another answer to that question is that sometimes you can be sitting in a revival service. Everybody seems to be getting touched. Everybody seems to be getting zapped, if you will, by a, a touch from God. And you're sitting there not feeling anything. And why does that happen? Well, sometimes you're in such a good spiritual place that sometimes maybe you don't need to have a goosebump or a butterfly. It's a walk of faith, folks. If you don't feel something, it's fine. That's not always necessary. We walk by faith, not by feelings. We walk by faith, not by sight. All right? So then in Psalm 23, verse 4, it says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. So learn to trust God all the time, not just during the spiritual highs. 
And likewise, learning to walk with God even when he seems distant. Ah, folks, that is a mark of faith and true spirituality. When you can keep walking with God and not waver, even when your nose is being pressed up to the grindstone of life. If you can keep walking with God, even when he seems distant and your spirituality seems dry, uh, that is the mark of a spiritual person. So don't be misled to believe that you've got to have some zap or spiritual butterfly all the time. And I'm, Those are wonderful when they happen, but we can't live there. We can't live there on those goodies when they come. Okay. Now, I do want to qualify those remarks, though, because I do want to tell you this, that God does want us to prepare ourselves to be carriers of his glory. You know, you see that artist's depiction there of Moses coming down off Mount Sinai after receiving the Ten Commandments, and the, the glory on his face was blinding to people. I believe that to a degree, God wants all of us to be carriers of his glory. Not that all of our faces are going to shine, but I do think that people carry, they carry something with them that's, that's recognizable, I think, to a lot of people. Eric Burton, uh, our guest speaker last week, told a, uh, a story about when he and some other ministers were out at a, did he say a Cracker Barrel, some restaurant, and then uh, a waitress came up to them and said, what is going on at this table? Uh, well, there's something about you guys. And they got to minister to her and they led her to the Lord that day. So she was attracted to something. She didn't even know what it was, but there was something on them that attracted them. I mean, I think the New Age world would call that an aura. But it's just, there's a, there's a presence of God that some people carry because they've been in his presence so much. See, we're supposed to be carriers of the glory to affect people around us. That's the purpose of it. You know, being in the glory will definitely affect us. We'll definitely get blessed from it. We'll definitely get healed, benefited, set free, blessed in some way. But it's not just for us. It's for other people, too. You know, I'm reminded of the first two kings of Israel on that point. The first one being Saul, the second one being David. You know, during Saul's reign, the country was in all kinds of turmoil. There was all kinds of trouble that was going on in the kingdom during Saul's reign because Saul was an insecure and ungodly king, very carnal and fleshly. But when David came on board, David brought the glory of God with him because he'd been in the glory so much. He cultivated that personal relationship with God. And when he stepped into the throne, he brought the glory with him and the whole nation changed. The glory of God affected the entire nation. So when we're in the glory of God, when we're practicing the presence of God, it's not just for us, it's for other people too. We can affect the people around us by being in the glory of God, by being in the presence of God and practicing his presence. And folks, I want you to understand something. There's been a shift in my life in just the last two weeks by, by doing this very thing. Now, I've always been very motivated spiritually. I'm a very self-disciplined person. Every morning I get up and read the scriptures and pray, almost without fail. But typically my practice for the last 
oh, what, 28, 29 years has been to get up and, you know, I'm kind of a slow riser sometimes, so I wake up kind of slowly, so I'll get up and make myself some coffee or tea and have a banana or some nuts. And, and then after I'm a, I'm a little bit more awake, I'll sit down with my scriptures, I'll read my scriptures for a while, read maybe an accompanying book, and then after that, with whatever time I have left over, before I get my day started, then I'll pray. For the last two weeks, that has not been the case. I've reversed that order. Sometimes things have to happen in your life to show you you're not as spiritually motivated as you think you are. Because we so often look at the people around us and we go, I'm doing better than 90% of the people around me. I must be doing okay. The scriptures say that when you compare yourselves among yourselves, you are not wise. There's some things that have happened in the last couple of weeks that made me go, I've not been pursuing God with all of my heart like I thought I was. Sometimes there will come a time in your life where you realize, I've got to take this up ten notches. Some calamity, some trauma, something happens in your family, and you realize, I have not been pursuing God the way that I thought I should be. And so for the last two weeks, I've been getting up first thing in the morning, forget the coffee, forget the banana. I get up, immediately splash some water on my face, go immediately to prayer. I'm getting up earlier than I ever have before, and I'm going right to prayer, and I'm just praying in the Spirit for an hour. Now, two Wednesdays ago, just to give you a little bit of evidence about how the glory is supposed to affect other people, not just ourselves. And it was a discipline. I I can't say that when I was in prayer that the heavens opened and I saw the glory of God. That didn't happen. It was a discipline, although I did get emotional a few times during that time. But it was the first time, two weeks ago on Wednesday, first time that morning I'd ever prayed in tongues for an hour without stopping. I'd never done that before. Tongues has only been a very small part of my prayer life. Not now. Because I realize how much I need that. Because the scriptures say when you pray in a tongue, when you pray in the spirit, you edify yourself. And I've had to have that edification lately more so than ever before. So two weeks ago on Wednesday, I got up and and I prayed in, in tongues for an hour. That night at the men's meeting, something very unusual and unexpected happened. I mean, we had a mini revival in the men's group two Wednesdays ago. And, and the, the prophetic was operating. And that we'd, I'd never done that before. We were praying over people. Our Bible study turned into a prayer meeting. And we were praying over people. And people were getting touched and ministered to. And the prophetic was operating. And I was operating in the seer anointing. I was saying, saying things over people. I didn't even know about them. But they said to, to me later, you hit the nail on the head with that. I didn't know. But I was prophesying over people and, and, and operating in the seer anointing. And I'd never, never had that happen to me before. But then again, I've never prayed in the spirit for a solid hour before I started my day either. The next Wednesday, I've been doing this for the last two weeks. The following Wednesday, we didn't have like a a revival prayer service at men's group. But we just opened up a very simple passage of scripture, Ephesians 5. We were talking about uh, husbands loving their wives. And I'm telling you, folks, I started talking and reading and revelations started coming out of me that I had I'd read that passage a hundred times. And revelations started coming out and I started to say things that I didn't even know that I knew. Well, I didn't know it. The Holy Spirit was saying things and showing me things and bringing revelation to me that was like, where'd that come from? 
It was a result of being in God's presence in, in a, a much, much deeper way than I'd ever been practicing before. Sometimes when, when times get desperate, you're going to have to take desperate measures. And that's where God begins to do things in you that you didn't even expect. It. God begins to do things in and through you that have nothing to do with what you've been praying about. But because you've been in his presence, he uses you in other ways. So, folks, listen to me. Too often, people want revival, but they're not willing to do what it takes on their own. They're not willing to do on their own, in their personal lives, uh, what it takes to help to get their churches and communities to that point. They want somebody else to do it, and then them come in with their spiritual surfboard and ride the revival wave. <laughs> right? That's true. They don't want to rend their hearts like Eric Burton was talking about last week. They don't want to rend their hearts in order to help get us there. Folks, listen, the people on the other side of the pulpit, meaning you all, have as much to do with this as the people on this side of the pulpit. It's not just all up to the pastor or the guest speaker. We have to be pursuing God as well. If you want to see revival, I've had people say this to me before. I just wish there was more, you know, revival in this church. I just wish there was more uh, of the spiritual gifts operating in this church. Sometimes the people that tell me that are here half the time. It's like, get up on Sunday morning. Come in and contribute and pray and seek God yourself. Don't tell me you want revival when you're here half the time. And you're not willing to pursue God on your own in prayer and worship and study of the word. I don't want to hear it. Show me how serious you are in your personal life. And then you can come to me and talk about revival. I can tell you all got really excited about that point right there. <laughs> Let me transition and make another point here. <laughs> yeah, let me move rapidly along. <clears throat> No, seriously, that point right there, you need to take that home with you and, and ruminate on that point for a little while. Amen. Okay? But I do want to ask this question and going in a little, in a little bit of a different direction in answering the question, um, what do we do after uh, a move of God? Eric Burton asked a question last week, well, what's revival even look like anyway? What's that supposed to look like? We have our preconceived ideas about what revival looks like, but What's it really look like? I want to talk just a little bit about that this morning. Is revival just a larger portion of what we saw last week or having those things happen on a more regular basis? And look, I am not against any of the things that we saw last week, folks. Anytime people are up here at the altar crying out to God, that's a good thing. And I'd like to see a lot more of that. And I'm certainly not against some of the other manifestations that we saw last week. Some of the very unusual manifestations for this kind of church that don't happen here that often. However, if those things don't result in some sort of life change, some sort of tangible fruitfulness in someone's life, then why are we doing it? See, you see, I'm not interested in having the power of God come over a person and knock them on the ground if it doesn't produce some sort of tangible change. Such as a jaw-dropping healing or a deliverance in a person's life of some sort. 
Folks, look, I'm at the point now where I'm so longing for the deeper and manifest glory of God, the genuine glory of God, and I am not interested in anything counterfeit. Not that what we saw last week was counterfeit. I'm not saying that. I'm not suggesting that. I'm just saying, where's your heart? And if, if these extra exercises, if these extracurricular spiritual activities are not producing some sort of tangible change, then we've got to do a gut check. Something's wrong. But if they are, praise God, let's go for it. And my prayer is, Lord, please, Lord, bring your genuine, manifest presence and glory to our homes, to our churches, to our services, and to our individual lives. The genuine stuff, not the fake stuff, not the manufactured stuff, the genuine stuff that results in life change. Because look, folks, there, is a, there are deeper things than just you coming to church and singing a few songs. And reading your Bible. God has much more for you than that. Not that, look, I'm not minimizing any of that, believe me. You know I'm a man of the word. You know that. But sometimes God will want to do something in you that's supernatural. And we have to be open to that as well. We do have to be open to those things. But at the same time, critical in our analysis of it. And, and, and if it's not producing life change, why are we doing it? Something's wrong. All right, so how do we become carriers of God's glory then? Because I believe he wants us to be carriers of his glory. I believe he wants to come in to our services and manifest himself in new ways that ministers and touches each and every person in here. I believe that there's more than what this church has experienced of the glory and presence of God. I do. I believe there's more. So how do we get there? Well, we simply practice his presence. We simply be in his presence, not only by being at church on a regular basis, but practicing his presence in your private life. If you're not doing that on a regular basis, you're never going to get there. You're never going to, you, you, may, uh, you may experience an occasional zap once in a while at a revved up revival service, but if you're not practicing the presence of God on your own, um, that will be very short lived. Folks, listen, I've been in charismatic circles all my life. And I've seen people who got touched in a revival service and apparently got so overwhelmed with the weight and the glory of God, they collapsed on the floor. But in some cases, not all, of course, but in some of those cases, those people would go right back to the lifestyles they were living before, which were not very godly. So we have to be practicing the presence of God between revival services and between church services. If we truly want to see a sustained move of God, folks, listen, it's going to come at a sacrifice. I'm almost done here, so hang with me for a minute. If you truly want to see a sustained move of God, it's going to come at a sacrifice. It's going to take people at these altars, and not only here at these altars, but in your homes, and people going after God like you never have before. This little lazy, passive way that people go after God is not going to provide breakthrough in your life. You may get to heaven doing that, but you may get slapped around by life in the process in getting there. And God wants much more for you than that. It's going to require that we do something different if we want different results in our lives and in our churches. We'll probably need to reprioritize some things that may not even be sinful. 
Eric Burton talked about, you know, hobbies and sports and things of that nature that sometimes are, are not wrong in and of themselves, but they crowd out the things of God in our lives. And sometimes we may just have to say no to certain things that are not sinful so that we allow more of God in our lives. See, there's no shortcut to revival, folks. There's no shortcut to personal growth either. You have to allow God to change your heart from the inside out. And we may need to take some things out of our lives, as I said, in order to make more room for God. So I'd like us to take some personal inventory right now. What I would like us to do, um, could we just do this? Could we just close our eyes for a moment? Because I want you and me to have a personal moment with God and just allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you for a moment. Um, I want us to ask ourselves, what is it that I need to do differently? What things do I need to root out of my life to make more room for you? Maybe it's, I don't know, too much TV. Maybe it's too much time on the computer. Maybe it's too much time with sports or your favorite hobby. Sometimes the things that crowd out God are not necessarily sinful in and of themselves, but they just take too much of our time and attention and affections. And listen, God is jealous for your affections. So let him speak to you right now. And we're just going to have a, a couple of moments of silence here. Don't be uncomfortable with the silence. It's just you and God. And say, Holy Spirit, what would you want to say to me right now? Thank you, Lord. Turn it down, guys. Yeah, because I don't need much. Okay, so I, 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 this is actually for you, but it's for the church. And I, hes <laughs> I hesitated, but I felt that the Lord wanted me to share this with you. And because I didn't know that you've been going through this uh, different dynamic. So, and I'm very careful with this kind of thing. People who know me know I'm very cautious about saying things. But two nights ago, um, I had a dream. And it wasn't because I ate pizza or anything like that. You know, because sometimes you, you know. But the Lord showed me something. And I, and I debated. I thought, oh, I don't want to tell him. He said, no. So after the teaching today, so I saw very clearly Blessed Life Fellowship. But we were not in this building. We were in our own church. We were in our own building. Hmm. And it was completely full of people. Hmm. And the, the atmosphere was just incredibly in the presence of the Lord. And there was no place to sit down. Hmm. And it was multiracial. So oh. there were m many people. Praise God. And one of the things I felt like the Lord wanted me to do one of the reasons to share it was to be an encouragement to you because I know when we did our prayer session a few months ago, we had a prophetic word about God doing something in our church. Yeah. And it just kind of validated that. But one of the things I felt like the Lord told me was that in connection with this message was that it's not just you that's 
yes, you're going to lead us, and then this can be fulfilled, but it was for our church body that we need to come in alignment with that same searching and, and calling out to the Lord in our own personal life. And then as we do that, I believe that this, this I don't want to say vision, but our future that I know I saw, because sometimes you can have an experience and you know you saw something. Mm-hmm. And it was that clear. It was very clear. And mm-hmm. so it was very wonderful. But I wanted to share that because I feel like the Lord wanted to validate that what you're doing and the way that you're teaching us and leading us right now is pivotable. Praise God. Praise God. Mm. Hallelujah. Yes. Amen. Amen. Yeah. You know, as as you were preaching this message and you were telling us, you know, we got to do something different. And I've been, I've been reading through Daniel and it's, it's been my, one of my favorite books in the Bible for a really long time. But as I was looking at it, you know, Daniel, I mean, God gives him wisdom, and he gives him understanding, he gives him favor with men, all this stuff. But a lot of the books about Nebuchadnezzar, too, and I'm looking, and I'm thinking, man, I can relate a lot closer to Nebuchadnezzar. You know, he, see, he wakes up and sees God, is God, and hey, you really ought to be paying attention to this God, and then he's back to whatever he was doing before. Well, in, I mean, and I got to the point where... Um, Nebuchadnezzar's son sees the vision on the wall and they call in Daniel, hey, what does this mean? You know, we ask everybody, nobody can tell us what this means, you know, but, and, and we're going to give you all kinds of stuff you can do this, you know, and Daniel's just like, you know, you don't need to be making me any promises because you're going to be out of here tonight. <laughs> but, you know, and then immediately he's back to one of three that are running the next kingdom. He's at the top with Nebuchadnezzar. Then when Darius takes over, Boom, he's right back to the top. And he's one of three governors. And then Daenerys decides, hey, I'm going to make you the number one guy. Well, and that's where they get into the whole Daniel and the lion's den deal where um, he, he's going to get on his knees before God three times a day. As was his habit from his youth. And I'm thinking, this guy's getting on his knees three times a day. What am I doing? You know, I mean, I'm going to church, maybe, oh, that guy guy over there, he's on his knees, you know? Daniel's doing this since he was a kid. Three times a day, he's getting on his knees, and he's praying and petitioning God. And it was prayer and supplication. Well, I looked up those words, and correct me if I'm wrong, but evidently Daniel's written in Aramaic. Yeah. So it, but the, the words in the Aramaic are, He's petitioning God for favor. Mm. I thought, hey, that might just change things. You know, I mean, because I'll read prayer and supplication. Hey, God, remember, I want this and this and, you know, but no, he's he's petitioning God for God's favor. I don't know. It just it when you were talking about, hey, you're going to have to do something different than you were doing before. That's something different than I was doing before. (laughs) But anyway, I just uh, what a message. And what a blessing. Praise God. I just, uh, pastor's exactly right about that meeting at Wednesday night with the men. Man, I'm telling you, Hmm. God Hmm. is moving here. He is. Praise God. Yes, that's right. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, brother. And, And thank you.
You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Andy Robbins and Blessed Life Fellowship. For more teaching and ministry resources, go to the church website at www.blessedlifefellowship.org. Thanks for listening, and may God's grace and favor shine on you.